Hey guys, it's Jordan Tanner here. Thanks for listening to this episode. Before we start, we just wanted to quickly run through a quick disclaimer for you guys. So Jordan's going to do his best pharmaceutical sales rep impression while he reads this disclaimer. Hit it, Jordan. It is. The views and opinions expressed in this interview by Heather are hers alone and do not necessarily represent those of the government of British Columbia. Now, please enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome everyone back to the TRU BLS podcast. As usual, I'm one of your hosts, Tanner, and I have my other host, Jordan, with me today. Um, We are very fortunate and lucky to have one of our guests, Heather Wellman, with us today. Uh, So Heather, I'm just going to pass it over to you. And how about you introduce yourself and tell, uh, tell the listeners about your area of practice? Sure. Thanks for having me. I love having an opportunity to talk about bankruptcy. So thank you very much. Um, I'm a lawyer. I was in private practice for 12 years doing um, primarily income tax and uh, insolvency, mostly bankruptcy litigation and then general civil litigation in Victoria. And uh, about 12 years in, I decided it was time for a change and uh, joined the Attorney General's office in British Columbia, where I was also doing income tax litigation and uh, insolvency and collections work. So I'm still there, mostly in a solicitor's role. I phased out of, uh, of the litigation a little bit. And so still, still love it. Okay, before we really get into bankruptcy, I have to ask, what's better, solicitor or litigation? Oh, it really depends. I'm really glad that I did litigation, um, but I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore. (laughs) So so there's a lot of there. I mean, they're both great and it kind of all depends um, like on your personality type and, and, uh, and, and what you like to do. Like that's the thing with law generally is there's so many different areas and so many different ways to practice that if you, if you start practicing it and it's not working for you, try something else, try a smaller firm, try a different kind of law, try a bigger firm, try just a different, different firm. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, they're both, they're both great. I'm glad where I'm at now. Heather, Heather loves the law and loves bankruptcy. So she's just uh, talking positive about everything here. <laughs> um, so how about then, uh, after my brief interlude, we, uh, we jump into it. Um, so maybe we can start by just doing like a basic kind of definition of, of what is bankruptcy and, and what happens when somebody kind of declares bankruptcy. I, I know for myself, we, we hear it all the time in the news or, or something, somebody has declared bankruptcy and uh, you kind of have a general understanding of that, me- what it means, but what does it kind of mean in the law and for a, a general sense? Well, that's, that's a really good question, because I think in, in the regular world, people talk about being bankrupt as, as, as someone being broke, just not having any money. But in the legal world, bankruptcy is, is a very formal thing. It's a formal status change, and it's a formal process. And so essentially what happens is a person who finds themselves uh, with overwhelming debt will go and see a uh, a trustee in bankruptcy. They're called licensed insolvency trustees now, LITs. And um, they'll talk about the situation. And if bankruptcy is the route chosen, then a bunch of paperwork gets filled out and submitted to the superintendent of bankruptcy who uh, regulates bankruptcy and, and trustees. Um, and then the person is formally bankrupt. And so what happens then is 
all of their assets will will vest in the trustee. So the trustee will gather in all of all of the assets that that person has, with the with the view to liquidating them to pay out um, that money to all of the person's creditors. Now there's there are some exemptions so that people can generally keep their clothes and their furniture and a bit of a car and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, with the idea that at the end of this process and the length will vary is that the debtor will be able to emerge free from those debts and the creditors um, will have gotten what they could have out of that person's assets and, and there's a fresh start for the debtor. Okay. So a fresh start, does that mean like they don't owe anything or like so they, they don't owe any, any debts anymore? So most debts are released in a bankruptcy. There's a list of about eight in Section 178 of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act that don't get released. And those are things that for, it's usually pretty obvious public policy reasons um, that we don't want for them to be released. So, um, I, I mean, I won't go through all of them, but there are things like for child support or spousal support, for example, um, uh, things where if um, property obtained by false pretenses or if someone who's in a fiduciary capacity doesn't do the right thing with, with money, <laughs> then those types of things will survive a bankruptcy. And so those creditors will still be able to pursue the debtor. But everything else, and um, believe it or not, including most taxes, will get released in a bankruptcy. So kind of speaking of the policy considerations, that that's surprising to me, actually, that the, the taxes get released. I mean, you always hear the, the jokes about the government is they would never let you off that easy with, with your taxes. Um, our last podcast was on taxes, <laughs> actually. Um, and so it's, it's just something I'm always thinking in my mind. What, what are kind of some of the policy considerations the government might have with letting people off the hook for say bad decisions they might have made or just things out of their control it, it it seems very against what our ideas of say capitalism and things like this would be is to let people off the hook well the biggest like bankruptcy legislation is very social policy based and so the thought the thought is and and the main driving purpose behind it is that if if someone's in a in, a, in an impossible financial situation that they can't get out of then there needs to be a release valve because if there if there isn't, then social ills like uh, you know drug addiction and alcohol abuse and and all the other ways that people deal with that kind of pressure will proliferate. And so there needs to be, uh, like I said, this escape valve for for financial pressure. And the whole idea behind the Bankruptcy and Solvency Act is that it it it's it's geared to honest but unfortunate debtors uh, who want to rehabilitate themselves um, so they can kind of get free of this uh, albatross around their neck is, is what some of the, the cases talk about so that they can then reintegrate into commercial life. And so there's, and there's a balance to that um, because creditors, you know, oftentimes aren't real happy about the fact that someone can go bankrupt and then effectively just walk away from the debt. And so the other side of the coin is that with the trustees and bankruptcy administering the process um, and gathering in the bankrupt's assets, there's, there's a process for a fair distribution uh, to the creditors um, and, it's a, and it's a very cost-effective 
a way of getting out the bankrupt assets. Well, to go back to the technical bits we were just talking about, you, can, you kind of mentioned it there. So back to like kind of the process of bankruptcy. So, I mean, all your assets go into a trustee. So somebody who, who, uh, who will like c- control it. Um, now, now what happens after that? How, how are creditors paid out? How, how, how do, how does the court or how does a statute decide who gets paid what um, after the, after the person declares bankruptcy? Well, there's the, the trustee is responsible for gathering in the assets and then and then selling them in a commercially reasonable way, and then they gather up a, a pool of money in, in an account, uh, and they'll distribute that to creditors based on a priority scheme that's set out in the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. And so that is essentially that um, creditors that are secured, so who hold collateral, such as banks that hold mortgages over real property or that sort of thing, um, they, they come first. And in fact, they're largely outside of the bankruptcy system because they can chase the particular piece of collateral that they hold um, to ensure performance of, of the debt. And then after that, there are some preferred creditors who get paid first. So one of those people is the trustee, which makes sense because they have to do all this work. So it's a good idea to, to make sure that they can cover their overhead and that sort of thing. Uh, and then once the preferred creditors are all paid, then uh, then all the unsecured creditors, so regular, regular creditors, mom and pop creditors, credit cards, that sort of thing, they get paid, but they share in the pool of leftover money on what's called a pro rata basis. And so that just means it's cents on the dollar of debt. So if at the end of the day, uh, the trustee is able to pay 10 cents on the dollar of debt, then someone owed $10,000 gets 10 cents per each of those dollars. So they'll, they'll recover more essentially than someone who is owed $5,000, but it's all kind of on a, on a fair like percentage basis. And I assume that's kind of where a majority of the litigation and things like that would take place is who's getting what, who's considered a higher uh, creditor and those kind of things. It's pretty set. So there can be some question about that. Um, but it's it's generally pretty clear in the act. There can be some concerns about, like, for example, to be a secured creditor, um, there's certain steps you need to take in order to have a particular priority position. And so um, certainly other secured creditors who might benefit by bumping off someone who ranks ahead of them uh, may, take a, may take a run at that. And then in, in Canada, at least anyway, there's not a lot, and, and when we're talking bankruptcy specifically, as opposed to some other insolvency processes, uh, there's not a lot of bankruptcy um, processes that happen in court like it's primarily done by trustees out, outside of court okay so i was wondering i think of a particular office episode <laughs> um how how does one go into bankruptcy like you, you mentioned like if, if you want to you go and fill out the, the forms but like what 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 uh what avenues are there for somebody to go into bankruptcy and why why would you like is this is this a strategic play for somebody to declare bankruptcy or is there kind of a point where you where you have to or i was wondering why would somebody go into bankruptcy especially yeah like well, wh- why would and how do people go into bankruptcy well there's two ways uh, one is voluntary so uh, a person decides for themselves that they're in this financial distress and and they they want to do something about that so 
And I described that process earlier. They go see a trustee and fill out paperwork and so on. And then there's also an involuntary route. So um, people can be petitioned into bankruptcy. So a creditor can apply to court to force a person uh, into bankruptcy. So there's those, those two routes. Um, and so in terms of do, do people assign into bankruptcy strategically, likely uh, that happens. Um, there are provisions like the bankruptcy act's been around for a while and, and the people who operate <laughs> operated are, are kind of are, get kind of hip to the, to the, to the gaming of the system that can happen. And so there are provisions in the act to, to try to ameliorate that sort of thing. Um, and so in terms of, do you have to go bankrupt? No, you never have to voluntarily uh, assign into bankruptcy, but a creditor could, could apply to a court to put you in. Um, and the, what's required in order to successfully a- apply um, voluntarily to go bankrupt is, is very low. It's just you need $1,000 in debt um, and, and that's all that's required. Now, there might be a lot of other practical considerations. You might have $1,000 in debt, but $300,000 in assets and going bankrupt really isn't, isn't going to do much for you. But um, the technical requirements are quite low. So what happens then after somebody declares bankruptcy? Is it a completely blank slate or are there certain penalties that they might face afterwards? So that's a really interesting point. There's lots of discussion about that in in the insolvency world about like what exactly is a fresh start. And so um, when a person is in bankruptcy, there are certain uh, obligations and and duties that they have. Like they have to be honest with the trustee about what their financial circumstances are and and give over to the trustee information about their their financial circumstances and assets and that sort of thing. Um, The day-to-day life sort of looks the same. Um, There are requirements monthly to report to the trustee what your income is because the trustee will get a certain percentage uh, of your income if you make more than guidelines that are set out in the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. Um, And that that can be difficult because those guidelines are based on low-income cutoffs. And and so that's, that's... how would how it goes? I think I think I've forgotten some of the questions now. So if you could remind me, that would be awesome. No, that's okay. It was more of just you know what what happened to people after bankruptcy, and and you know that's kind of what it seems like is it is they're going to be kind of monitored. They're going to make sure you know if if there is money that some people are going to get kind of some of that money back, even if it's not all of it, without being too much of a burden. Is is that kind of the the process as I understand it? Right. So there. All of the assets of the bankrupt will will vest in the trustee with some exceptions. So there are certain exemptions that are set out in each province will have some sort of an enforcement act. And uh, so they get to keep that sort of thing. So a $5,000 car in British Columbia, for example, I think it's $4,000 for household furnishings, uh, $10,000 for tools of the trade and that, and that kind of thing. Otherwise, the rest of the assets, and there's, and there's some other exemptions. So um, RSPs uh, will be exempt as long as uh, there, w- there wasn't a contribution within the last 12 months before bankruptcy and that sort of thing. So the trustee will figure out what's exempt and what's not, gather in the rest of it, liquidate it, figure out which of the creditors um, get what part of that and when. Um, and then at the end of the day, as long as the bankrupt 
behaves, they will be discharged at, at a particular date. And, and yeah, most of their debts will be discharged unless they happen to come within that section 178 of the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act that I was talking about. And, and so they'll carry on without, um, without any debts other than the 178 debt. And, and they carry on. Now, in the, in the real world, there will be some consequences. So it will affect a person's credit rating, for example. Um, and so, you know, it might be difficult to, to get credit or to get credit at a reasonable rate of interest uh, for some time while that still appears on your credit rating. So unlike Monopoly, then it's when you go bankrupt, you don't lose the game. You could you could still have a house. You you go home. You're still going to probably have some money to eat. It's <laughs> you're not this bum under the the sidewalk or the street anymore or anything like that. Like they kind of picture on the boxes or the get out of jail free cards. Yeah, yeah I think Monopoly, with man. <laughs> I think with Monopoly, the way they use bankruptcy is like how it's sort of talked about in in the regular world. Like, oh, you're just broke. Whereas in the legal world, uh, bankruptcy is this formal process that helps you to get to be able to then partic participate again in the commercial world um, free, free of those debts. Which is really interesting to me because when you hear about bankruptcy, it, it always sounds like such a, a stain on your reputation and, and this really black mark. Um, but in reality, it, it, it's more of just a helpful process that for whatever reason anyone might go through just to to kind of reinsert them into in themselves into a functioning society yeah like uh there there certainly is a stigma i think that that is waning a bit um with the the world getting more comfortable with more debt um for sure and and it's not i mean it's not all fun and games though like so i mentioned the the credit rating and so you can imagine that, for example, let's say you're like a building contractor and who has to assign in, into bankruptcy because the market changed or, you know, something beyond your control in any event. Again, harkening back to this honest but unfortunate debtor. And so there'll be creditors that aren't going to get paid who you've been doing business with for years. And they're not going to be real happy because it affects their bottom line as well. Um, or there might be friends and family who lent money and, and that sort of thing. So there are relationships which, you know, assigning it to bankruptcy will will affect. Um, but but yeah, overall, the idea is like you can't have people in this financial pressure cooker without some sort of relief because the social ills that would result are 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 worse. And so once you can rehabilitate someone back into commercial life, then they are then contributing again and uh, and not like stressed out beyond belief. So is there like limit? Like is like is there a limit to how many times you can declare bankruptcy? I mean, if you declare bankruptcy once, you get out um again, like serial bankruptcy declarers. Like, yeah, how, how does that work? I mean, is, is that common or or not? Because I mean, after you declare bankruptcy, it's hard to get credit. But what if you have to declare bankruptcy again? Um, kind of how does that work? That's a really good question because it is sort of intended for, uh, you know, you're unfortunate and, and honest. And so we're, we're going to let you out this first time. And so there are serial, there are people who assign into bankruptcy in a serial manner and it gets, it gets harder and harder. So you're, you're kept in longer, uh, which means like more of your income will go to your creditors and that sort of thing. And then the terms for how you get out will get 
more difficult. So I said earlier that mostly it's trustees that handle bankruptcy things and the courts not so much. But once you're in bankruptcy for, you know, your second or third time, and depending on the type of debts, at that point, then in order to get discharged, you need to go to court. And the court has a look at all of the circumstances and decides what kind of a discharge order to make. And so the more times you're in bankruptcy, the harder and harder that discharge order is going to be. So the more you're going to have to pay, the longer you're going to have to be in. And in fact, the court can refuse a discharge as well. And so the reason why that's um, important is that when you go into bankruptcy, there's an automatic stay of proceedings, which means that your creditors can't chase you anymore, which is part of the relief. And so, uh, you know, the phone stops ringing, there's no collect, there's no, you know, collections calls, there's no overdue notices in the mail, like it just stops. And so if, and that stops while the trustee is in place, the, the trustee is also at some point released from the file. And that's also called a discharge, which is which is kind of too bad. So both the bankrupt gets discharged and the trustee gets discharged. And so in the usual course, the bankrupt gets discharged. And what that does is releases the debts. And then later, the trustee will get discharged. And what that triggers is a lifting of that stay. And so if a court says to someone, you know, this is your fourth bankruptcy and we don't think you've learned because it's always been tax debts that are the problem. We're going to refuse you a discharge. At some point, the trustee is going to apply to get discharged as well, in which case the stay will lift and the creditors can come back in to chase that undischarged bankrupt, which would be kind of lousy. So you both have the status of a bankrupt and your creditors can chase you. So that that's the ultimate result if uh, if there's too many bankruptcies and the court refuses your discharge. Um, and kind of on the topic, something I was thinking about earlier when we were, when we were chatting about it, I guess maybe this would be something that happens with serial bankrupt people is kind of the nefarious person. You talked about people who wanted to be, uh, I mean, hip to the system, kind of wanted to game the system of bankruptcy. Like I was thinking, what kind of rules are there around, I mean, me going, taking a bunch of loans, buying a something buying a buying a yacht transferring it to somebody and then just declaring bankruptcy and uh 12 months i'm out of here discharge like kind of kind of what rules are in place to kind of stop that because it does seem like a system i mean that that can that can be abused so kind of how, how do the court and parliament get around that there's a there's a couple of ways so in the bankruptcy act itself there's like there's a couple of sections that would deal with so the situation that you're talking about would be like an undervalued transfer or something like that. And so um, you can imagine that that people may, prior to going into bankruptcy, they might want to prefer, you know, their brother. And they so they pay off their brother's debt, but they don't pay off, you know, any, any other creditors. Um, and so in that sort of situation, there's a section where called under called um fraudulent preferences, where the trustee can go in and essentially set aside that transaction uh, in a, within a certain amount of time. And that certain amount of time will change depending if the transaction is arm's length or not. So if it's not arm's length, so it's family or friends or what have you, then it, the trustee has a longer period to be able to go in and undo that transaction. And there's and there's another provision where you can imagine someone before bankruptcy may want to kind of hide 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 an asset or two or all of them and, and give them away. And so, so with the yacht example, uh, there's another 
provision uh, that deals with undervalued transfers. And so again, the trustee can go in and set aside those, those transfers. Um, again, as far back as the trustee can go back as far back as five years if it's if it's a non-arm's length transfer and and challenge it as as undervalue in order to just void that transaction and, and get the the boat in this circumstance back effectively into the the hands of the bankrupt, which will then vest in the trustee because of the of the uh, bankruptcy or require payment from the, the third party who's sort of complicit in, in that transaction or require payment from the bankrupt for, for the amount before uh, they're able to be discharged. Okay. I, that that kind of makes me think about student loans and how they would work because in the yacht example, there, there is something you can give back. You, you purchase something. It's a, it's a thing, right? Whereas I can't really give back my my degree. At least I don't think I can. I mean, maybe the school will come after they, they listen to me talk on these podcasts one day and come and take it back from me. I don't know if that's <laughs> a thing. But uh, <laughs> um, so how would a student loan uh, work if you went bankrupt? So student loans are are special. So they are one of the of the types of debts that that can that survive bankruptcy. So they're in Section 178. But they're special in that there's there's a time limit. So all of the other provisions in Section one se- in one seventy eight, it doesn't matter how long you have that debt, it it's, it just survives, subject to the Limitation Act uh, or any other limitation periods. But with student loans, how it works is that in order for a student loan debt to be discharged in a bankruptcy, you have to have been out of school for seven years before you assign into bankruptcy, and there's lots of difference across the country about what does it mean to be out of school like when do you the 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 lingo that's used is when do you cease to be a student and so so there's there's that so it's not exactly clear when that date is going to be but at some point after seven years if it's after seven years and you go bankrupt then your student loans are just released in the usual course like a regular unsecured debt there's another provision uh in it's section 178 1.1 which is it's a, it's a, it, amongst lawyers that do these applications, they're called hardship applications. And so if you find yourself in a position where you have to assign into bankruptcy before those seven years are up, so your student loans aren't discharged, but you have been out of school for five years, then you're able to um, apply to the court to say, you know what, I still owe these student loans. They weren't discharged. I had to assign too early. Um, but I'm still experiencing financial hardship and um, please, will you relieve me of my student loan obligations? And so, so none of the other section 178 debts have those. So student loans have this, this time limit and then the hardship, the hardship application. And so it's, it's interesting. So they're, they're lumped in with, you know, child support and spousal support and, and you know, debts owed for fraud um, or, or defalcation while acting in a fiduciary capacity and, and at some point in, I think it was 1995 or 1997, the, the government had experienced a lot of student loan bankruptcies. And so they brought in these special provisions. And originally they were two years, both of them, the original um, uh, timeline and the hardship provision. And then that worked really well. They were really happy with that. And so they extended it to 10 years. And there was a lot of, um, a lot of negative feedback from the 
from the industry and probably lobby groups and and uh, and so then it was shrunk down to seven years for the initial you know when does it get discharged and and for some reason they went with five for the hardship application so it's it's had a bit of a a bit of a history yeah it seems like a balancing act because it's interesting it's just like if you have that 10 years like you go and get massive loans and it's not going to get discharged it's going to stop people from wanting to actually I mean, get out that loan and go to school if, if it's a big risk because they can't they can't discharge it in bankruptcy. I mean, so I was wondering, kind of, what are the pol? I mean, we maybe discussed a bit, but I mean, what are kind of the the policy implications behind just making it so it can't be discharged? Because they kind of reached a point where it just can't be discharged anymore. Like, why would they do that? Because I mean, it, it seems that's kind of discouraging maybe people to go to school. Um, What's kind of why would the government kind of want to support that? What's what's kind of why a, a policy, a route they'd want to take? Well, I mean, there's going to be a lot of things that go into that consideration, but certainly most of them. So, student loans to to the side for a moment. There's simply different considerations there. Is that it? The, the types of things that survive are the types of things that you would think the person on the street would be a little bit offended that someone could just walk away from. Like you don't just get to walk away from uh, support for your kids. You know, you don't just get to walk away from a, a requirement to, to pay spousal support um, or again, like uh, uh, debts owing for fraudulent activity and, and that sort of thing. So all of those, like those those make sense, right? There's um, there's another one which is um, for damages for infliction of bodily harm that's intentional. So you think people will be offended that you know you, you get sued because of of damages you caused to a person for assaulting them, and then you just get to go bankrupt and walk away. So all of those survive. And then with student loans, like I said, I mean they're they're special, uh, and there must have been uh, the federal government must have seen that there was. They must have felt that there was advantage being taken and so wanted to stop um, opportunistic bankruptcies by people on their student loans. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems like, and this isn't really a question, it's more of an observation. It, it seems like a very interesting policy stance on the student loans, that they're they're lumped in, in a sense, with these fraud um, debts or child support debts when in a country like Canada, you know, we have like elementary school, high school, these are these are free things, you go do that, we're very supportive of it. And then when it comes to say getting a higher education, suddenly your your debts accrued in that are the exact same as a debt you might accrue through through, through fraud. It, it's quite interesting to me that somewhere along the line, that's the policy shift that was decided. And whether that was the right decision or wrong decision, I, I have no idea, it's just interesting. <laughs> Yeah, and, it, and it's possible that, that they went that route rather than decrease the amount of loans given out in the first place or or making criteria to get a loan harder. I, who, who knows? But yeah, anyway, it's there. And it is it is interesting that sort of student loans are lumped in with fraud. <laughs> the more you know, going to school, it's basically fraud. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, we're a little salty. We're a little salty about that. Well, this is what happens, you know, when you, you, you do your undergrad and then you start going to law school, you get a little salty near the end. 
Heather, I'll I'll leave it to you for for one last question. If if there was anything you could tell young law students or or younger lawyers, people just getting into practice, why they should go into bankruptcy law, what would it be? Oh, geez. Uh, why essentially? Why do I love bankruptcy? Well, so with the pen, there's a couple of reasons. <laughs> so. <laughs> One is a little bit mercenary because so with the pandemic um, and with the debt situation of Canada as a whole prior to the pandemic, there's most insolvency practitioners and professionals um, are waiting, waiting for the storm. So right now, insolvencies are down, likely because of the money that the that the government has has put into the economy to help with the pandemic. And so everyone's just sort of in stasis. Um, but it's sort of seen in, in the insolvency world as the calm before the storm. So it's it's kind of a growth area, probably. <laughs> so, that, so that's one reason. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that. Um, and the the other reason is, like I was saying before about about there's there's so many different kinds of law um and you may not like one but you might like the other and and i think i mean i like bankruptcy because i like it but if i have to get sort of logical about it there's this big statute to go to with a system and some rules you go there first and if there's no answer there then you've got these really clear policy rules around it you know the whole honest but unfortunate debtor and then with us um we can definitely see it when when you talk and you know you make it interesting it's it's something that i never thought i would be able to be interested in especially when you hear about it um numbers and and me don't really clat or work well together so uh but yeah no i i thoroughly enjoyed that and i'm i'm sure jordan uh, feels the exact same way. Um, yeah, but I think we'll call it there for the day and thank you once again. Um, and we, we hope to maybe talk to you again sometime. Well, thanks again for the opportunity. Have a great day.